Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to this special edition of the New Statesman podcast, recorded live at Conway Hall on the 30th of July 2014. In this episode, I'll be talking to Mary Beard and Laurie Penny about why people are so afraid of outspoken women. everyone and thank you so much sorry we had some difficulties getting everybody in here and that it's really hot but we're a good panel but I don't think we're good enough to be able to affect the weather so I apologize for that I'm joined tonight by two fearless intelligent outspoken women to talk exactly about why women like them are so frightening to people um, so that their mere existence leads to threats abuse and mockery Mary Beard is a professor of classics at Cambridge University and the author of books such as Laughter in Ancient Rome she's presented several television programs on the Romans and she blogs for the Times Literary Supplement She was a subject of vicious personal abuse after she appeared on Question Time in 2013. Her lecture for the LRB in March was called The Public Voice of Women. Laurie Penny is a columnist and author and a contributing editor at The New Statesman. Her latest book, Unspeakable Things, contains a chapter entitled Cyber Sexism, which tackles online misogyny. This autumn, she'll be taking a sabbatical from The New Statesman... Um, to become a, yeah, exactly, to become a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, where she will study the economic history and theory of social movements... Um, A couple of bits of housekeeping, which is that both of these wonderful women will be doing signings in the foyer afterwards. Uh, Laurie's book will be discounted because um, we've sorted out some sort of special deal. Sweet. Mary's won't. No. (laughs) Mary wants every... Mary needs a new patio, so no. (laughs) If you want to sign up to the New Statesman Events mailing list and receive a free copy of the magazine, you can sign up with Ella and Maria, who've got clipboards as well. Um, And you can also visit New Statesman com forward slash events to find out stuff we've got coming up. We've got a World War I event, Does Britain Romanticise Its Military Past, on 10th of November. And we've also got Erica Wagner in conversation with Hilary Mantel, another wonderful woman, uh, on the 6th of September at the Old Witch Theatre. But first, I really wanted to put tonight's debate in context because it's a subject that gets talked around but actually not confronted often. Um, and I apologise to you that some of the language we're using tonight will be both violent and obscene and threatening, but I think all of us believe that it's very important to talk about these things as adults, in adult spaces, and see what actually happens. Um, So, this is what Mary said, which I thought was fantastic, in an interview with the New York Times uh, around the time of her abuse, which is, you never know what it's like because no mainstream paper will print it, nobody on the radio will let you say it, and so it came to look as if I was worried that they said I hadn't done my hair. And here is 
what they actually said. In the case, of, first of all, of Caroline Criado Perez, now you know two people were convicted of harassing her on the internet. About another 80 people did it and got away with it. And then the second lot of um, pictures I'll show you will be from a blogger called Anita Sarkeesian, who wanted to crowdfund a video series about women in video games. And for this, attracted the attention of a, a, a forum called 4chan. And you're going to see what that looks like. So first of all, here are some tweets sent uh, over a course of about two to three weeks to Caroline Criado Perez. This is when the people thought that they'd got hold of an address for Caroline, which luckily turned out not to be her current address. But that didn't stop them from posting it repeatedly sending it to her to show her that they knew what it was. That, I think, was one of the ones that actually got a conviction. And people still say to Caroline now that um, she's oversensitive, that she shouldn't complain about these things, that everybody who's in public life expects a bit of criticism, and why are damn women so sensitive about these things? Uh, and I think you can probably see, let's, yeah, that's really, there's a line between informed criticism and that crosses it quite a lot. These are some things that happened to Anita Sarkeesian. First of all, she had YouTube comments like this, absolutely hundreds of them posted under her video that for her Kickstarter. Uh, then people started sending drawings, putting a, you know, God bless them for the effort, uh, send drawings of her being raped by Super Mario. Uh, she's, um, she's styled them out there. Uh, then they did this, which is, you know, fine if you're 11, I presume, but a bit sad for a grown person to be doing. They did uh, all this kind of stuff that they sent to her. And then the final cherry on the cake was someone created a game called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian, in which you clicked your mouse on the screen and bruises appeared on her face. Um, and so this is something that Laurie said that I think we'll be talking about tonight, which I think is really important, which is uh, a woman's opinion is the miniskirt of the internet. And just as we see in public spaces, women are told that, why are you out so late at night? Why are you wearing that? As if any of this is their fault when they get attacked or raped. And you see very much the same dynamic being played out on the internet. Well, why are you on Twitter anyway? Who needs to be on Twitter? Never mind the fact that, it's, for a lot of people, it's really important to their career. There is some belief that women in some way can do things that will stop them being harassed. And I'm afraid that's simply not true. Um, this is a quote from Rebecca Solnit. So we'll be talking tonight about women's voices, outspoken women on levels big and small. But she said in her great essay, Men Explain Things to Me, having the right to show up and speak a basic to survival, to dignity and to liberty. More extreme versions of our situation exist in, for example, those Middle Eastern countries where women's testimony has no legal standing so that a woman can't testify that she was raped without a male witness to counter the male rapist. And I think that's an important point we'll pick up. And I'm sure a lot of women will recognise this scenario. <laughs> That's an excellent <laughs> suggestion, Ms. Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. Um, it's a cartoon that Mary used in her LRB lecture, and it's something that I used to have next to my desk at my old workplace to get me through. Um, so I'm going to start off by saying, Mary, when you were an undergraduate and a, a young Don, what kind of sexism did you experience then? And it, it, was it different to what you experience now? Um, I experienced it differently. And that's different, I think, from saying it was different. Um, and the way I experienced it, in, in some ways, I think, was, was strangely easier than it is now. And that was partly because you know, when I was, when, when I was a, a young academic in Cambridge, when I was a, a graduate student, you, know, you would go into dinner at some men's colleges, and they were then men's colleges, and people would say, hello, my dear, you're looking very lovely tonight, but frankly, I don't think we should have women in this college. Um, and actually, 
That was up front and out in the open and reasonably polite. And you said, well, I'm terribly sorry, I don't agree with you. And, uh, and then some kind of dialogue happened. And I think that in, in my sort of impression of how things have gone, and this is obviously very, very based on you know, a, one particular elite university, but I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's atypical, is that we sort of thought that that had gone away. We sort of thought that people weren't there thinking that. And what actually I now realise, and I, I think in some ways I found the internet hugely revelatory from that point of view, but they're still thinking it. Yes. You know, I used to think they got better, you know, and that people didn't say, well, frankly, I don't think we should have any women around here. Um, and they think, my goodness me, you know, really, you know, Talk about progress and what all this stuff showed me, you know, and you know, you might say, well, that isn't being done by Cambridge academics. It's being done by a very wide range of How do we know it's not people. being done by Cambridge academics? You know. Has anybody gone round? <laughs> it might be, you know, it's very easy to dismiss this, to say, oh, this is something just the kind of, you know, this is the, the lunatic fringe. Well, you know, in some ways, you know, in the end, I think that... Um, some of the more vicious versions and ill-spelt versions of death plus rape that probably are. But actually, I, I, I think I, I feel grateful to the web that it has reminded me that because I no longer saw in my day-to-day -day working life that kind of... Um, well, you can, you know, let's call it sexism, but actually it's misogyny and it's worse mm -hmm. than that. Because I no longer saw it, it sort of meant it had disappeared. And I, I mean, in some ways I feel liberated by this because it's actually enabled me to say, it is still there, people. That's very funny. Naomi Alderman says something similar in a book called Fifty Shades of Feminism where she talks about the sexism of, of games journalism, which is incredibly over. It's on the make-me-a-sandwich level. Yeah. And she says she finds that weirdly easier to deal with than the yes. subtle sexism of the literary world where it's, yes. oh, that's a woman's novel, meaning it's about feelings and, of course, you know, men's novel. Yeah, well, this is something you've said often, yeah. isn't it? Men write you know, a, a journey or an essay and yeah. a memoir. And women write crap confessional journalism yeah. while they was going on about yes, periods. Yes, when, when men do it, it's, it's literature. When women do it, it's confessional, personal. That's, <laughs> and, right, uh, that's right. So I'm interested to know, Mary's been told that she's not allowed to speak sometimes because she's too old. You've been told a lot that so you're not allowed to speak because you're too, too young. Too young, yes. Is this, is this when, working right? Yeah. When, he, when, when is the magical day that you are allowed to I think to there, is, there is one day, isn't there? It's like that flower that grows in the desert that only blooms for one day. Women are apparently there... I, I've come to believe that there is possibly one magical day in the whole span of a woman's life when you have, but you have to get all the opinions out on that one day. You know, like um, at the lady in Texas, the senator. Wendy Davis. Like Wendy Davis, yes, maybe that was her one day. Maybe They're going to do a hell of a filibuster. Yeah, right? a filibuster, but yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, but I don't think there is one day, actually. I think that the, the invisible line between... Silly schoolgirl and old hag. Old is, I think yes. you can be both at the same time. There's probably around your mid thirties. You're both, like maybe. Okay, look forward to some of that. Um, and do you see a link between the stuff, the really, the stuff at the beginning of that presentation, mm -hmm. the threats and the harassment, and the smaller stuff? Are we wise to draw an idea of a kind of continuum? What really interests me, um, I, initially, I should say, when I um, 
when I started receiving these threats and these messages, and it has got much worse over the past few years. I really feel that seven or eight years ago on the internet, maybe I was just mostly on live journal where it was a bit, I feel like it was a bit nicer. I romanticized live journal now. For me, it's like the sort of golden age where we were all nice to each other and just talked about Buffy. But I'm um, so young that live journal is the thing that you're nostalgic about. I'm your age. <laughs> I'm nostalgic about like typewriters or something like that. <laughs> but, um, in the last few years, I thought that, well, it was just sort of fringe people with particular weird agendas sending these, uh, these disgusting misogynist things. But what I've noticed is that actually some of the really horrible stuff will come alongside what, look from, what looks from the start like reasonable critique. Yeah. So people will be sending um, the uh, shut up bitch, you should die. But then they will be sending actually on line four of Laurie's last article, she says this and that. And it's, it's, the intelligence of it really frightens me actually because you can't write it off as just stupid people, just people with deep emotional problems, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, it's, uh, but that's something yeah. that came up when we looked at the... So after Mary got abused, one of the websites I was doing was a website called Don't Start Me Off. Um, and it turned out that one thing you could start them off about was by being a woman in public. Oh, yeah. That really did start them off. Um, and the, this is what I love about what you did there, which is mm. that you just spoke about it. You said, this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. And this guy who had been operating under the basis yes. that this is my freedom of speech, it turned out the one thing that really frightened him was your freedom of speech yep. because you spoke out about it. It was uncovered that he was a lettings agent yeah, from Epsom. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got an email actually from uh, about this guy saying, oh, well, you know, he has a wife and kids and he's ever so sorry and so could people please stop talking about the fact that he runs this website full of insane racists death threats and uh, you know, weird descriptions of how they're going to rape and murder you. And, uh, so, but it's probably fine. He's a nice guy, really. He's got a kid. But and he, he did... The, I the mean, normality of these people. He took... That, that's what I... I mean, I, I had very mixed reactions to that because what, what he said about me was, you know... And what he, the guys on this website said were... You know, well... You certainly couldn't talk about them on Woman's Hour, which is where I tried to talk about them. <laughs> became, you know, um, and, and it was when I was... What prompted what I was saying that, that you showed, Helen, was that, that one of the things they did was they got, a, 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 as you said, it was rather badly photoshopped, but they got a picture of my face and they put a labia right across it so that my face and Which genitalia... direction? Up or, or across? Um, vertically. Oh, vertically. <laughs> I think it was easy to do it vertically. I like that the academic news coming out that you've been upset they've been badly spelled and now yeah. the uh, attention to detail yes, was poor. Was, and one of the things I did, and I, you know, this was... I, I was very lucky because I have a, a, a blog and it's on the... the it, it, is now on the Times Literary Supplement website, it was then on the Times website, but nobody in the Times ever checked out my blog to see if there was, you know, difficult things on it. Um, uh, and so when I posted this picture, which I thought, look, I'm going to just show people what it's like, you know, it took them weeks to discover, you know, <laughs> what was there. But it was, you know, actually, it was so wonderful to do what you've done. This is the kind of stuff. And in the end, um, uh, and although I, you, know, I, you have to be realistic um, about quite what sort of a victory what this was, the guy running the website, the lettings agent from Sidcup with the wife and kids, 
did take the site down. Now, I uh, uh, and his followers blamed me, and I, you know, and I've got no idea. I suspect it's probably morphed into something else somewhere else. So I think one one shouldn't claim victory. But I think, I mean, what I go away with is is actually a feeling that that incident, for all its horribleness, you know, my son was looking over my shoulder, you know, when we were looking at these things, and he was saying, my goodness me, they can spell very lamium, you know, the, the, these guys. And I thought, right, yeah. Uh, but they did take it down. And the other thing was that more than the mainstream liberal media thought that that was absolutely not on in any way. I mean, the Daily Mail, who I'd kind of thought might think that I was getting, you know, my comeuppance, Mm -hmm. were actually as supportive as The Guardian. And so in some ways, I think, you know, I I agree with all you said, Helen. Um, I, I just think that in some ways, these these really dreadful incidents partly show us that 99.9% of people really don't think it's, it's mm. on. And I wanted to pick up with you, Laurie, yeah. this idea of, of, of freedom of speech, because that is so often the justification, is that yep. people, um, and you see this a lot in trolling cases, people see themselves as free speech martyrs. They yeah. think they're sort of... Valiant you know, defenders of free speech. Richard Pryor, or, you know, or some of the people who printed the Bible for the first time in English. You know, they think that this is... a a free speech issue. How do you counter that feeling that all they're doing is, you know, standing up to women who, as we know, are basically now in charge of everything? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love it. It's, it's a fantastic great, world. Isn't it? Women the hours are quite long. <laughs> I'm but... really enjoying it. But, no, I think it's fascinating how um, when hundreds of, uh, of strangers on the internet tell you that you should die or that you're a terrible writer, you're a terrible person, they attack your family, they attack your colleagues. Um, That is not silencing. But as soon as you say, hey guys, maybe that's not okay, you are a censor and you you are silencing and you're you're attacking the very notion of freedom of speech. So yet there is definitely a freedom of speech issue here, absolutely, but it's not the one that they say it is. And I think... In many cases, I, maybe this is a bit simplistic, but I have now when now when I read the phrase freedom of speech in those arguments used by those kind of people, I, I it just translates in my head to men's speech. That's like you're not you're not defending the principle of freedom of speech. You're defending the principle that the public sphere is only for men and only for people who are prepared to speak in the voice of men and to attack women in this way. Well, that's interesting, because something that you built up in your LRB literature was the idea of literally about female speech and even speaking in a female voice, speaking in a high, you know, in a high pitch in what seemed to be an emotional language. So mm-hmm. we know that famously you know, Margaret Thatcher had coaching to make her voice sound lower. What can women do in the short term to try and you know, enact their expertise, be taken more seriously? Uh, it was very interesting, because after that lecture, um, I got quite a lot of emails and tweets from women and phone calls, actually, you know, which was quite um, impressive. I got, wow, um, you don't often get phone calls from no, strangers. No, it's kind of retro. Um, saying, do you know I've just been on a, an assertiveness course? And do you know what we were first told? Make, take your voice down an octave, darlings. You know, you must speak lower. And these were people mm-hmm. from, 
you know, mainstream media outlets who had gone along to in-house training and, you know, what they were being told is pretend not to be a woman. Mm. You know, that was... You know, so the way you get a voice is by, by pretending not to be who you are. And, you know, in some ways I think, you know, in, in a way it famously quotes worked for Thatcher, if we can think of it in those terms. But it never works if what you're going to do is get on by, by being an actor, an actor or an actress or whatever, rather than yourself. You know, mm-hmm. If what you have to do is pretend to be someone else in order to get heard, you have already lost the battle. I mean, I, I, I suppose you know, my, my short answer to what you do is answer back. You just bloody answer back. Because... Uh, my experience of replying in a slightly, pa- I have to say, I, I do kind of take a slightly donish stance. You know, I say, right, <laughs> let's just think about that issue of free speech, you know, etc. You know, you know, are we free to shout fire in a crowded cinema, etc., etc.? Um, Did Voltaire have uh, this in that's mind? Right, you know, that's yeah. right. And, and, uh, and what I found is that you, you win some. You absolutely whittle some down. And, you know, you can go to bed at night thinking, that guy is not going to say that again. And I got, after the same Don't Start Me Off incident, I got uh, an email sent to me. It was about immigration. And he said, I, I come from where you come from. Um, you, your parents, I knew your parents, and they were good people, but you are evil. Um, etc. What? So I wrote back and I said, really nice to hear from you. Thank you so much for getting me. I don't actually think that because we disagree about immigration that I am evil. Um, And I went on a bit in the same vein. He then writes back and says, look, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said evil because, you know, that that was wrong. I was just very angry about what you'd said about migration. Um, and then he says, and actually, I've got a reason to be, because I want to emigrate to Spain. And I cannot get my MP to tell me what the reciprocal health agreement is in Spain. So I thought, Beard, come on, this is your moment. It took me two minutes on Google. I looked it up, and I sent it to him, and he was so grateful. And, and now, when I'm having a rough time ever... Uh, I often get an email from him saying, Mary, are you all right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think... Is he sitting on the Costa del Sol drinking a big I, margarita with an yeah, umbrella? Yeah. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope he's not sitting in much Wenlock. Yeah. <laughs> Has that happened to you? Have you had success with going from, I hope you die in a fire, to... Occasionally. Oh, I mean, I mean sometimes it happens when, um, when you just... What I've started doing is just hitting retweet, and I get some of the weird... One of them was... Um, how dare Laurie Penny say that women are routinely victims of domestic, domestic violence? I wish I could punch that bitch, bitch in the face. <laughs> like, I was just like, this is, that, that's just poetry. It's, it's, there's something quite moving about it, in a way. And I just hit retweet, and it turned out this, this, it was a 19-year-old student. This was a couple of years ago now, and, and people have come back, and people, people uh, have, in those situations, said... Oh, well, maybe I've thought again. It's often young guys, actually. It's, it's young yeah. people who... Yeah. And actually, I have had occasions on Twitter, um, in particular, where a couple of 
months or years later, people have come back and said, just so you know, I think I was a bit of a dickhead a few years ago. But unfortunately, this now comes in such volumes that for them, this was like they were saying a big, brave thing by calling me an idiot. But for me, I get that. At the moment, it's fast, literally faster than I can block people. Mm. Like it just, there's an endless stream of it. So I'm not going to remember. I have no idea what the person originally said to me. At the risk of endearing David Cameron to you, apparently his party trick is that he reads out the replies to his tweets in a silly voice. Oh. So he goes like, fuck off, dish face. (laughs) (laughs) And I really can't recommend that to you highly enough as a strategy um, for dealing with that. Me and and my sister, who is is in an indie folk band, uh, we've been working on... Because taken together, I think... They, they express a profound inner sadness in some ways. And we've been working on setting some of them to music. So actually, I think that like, they're quite a lovely sort of, you know, a, a, a ballad about a sort of the, the state of masculinity. It's kind of like Bon Iver style. So, uh, and I, I think that, I mean, this, this is doing it too, too much of a justice, actually, but to, to call, I mean, this kind of stuff is a broad church and there are many, many different sorts of aggression and politics and versions of misogyny involved. And in, in some ways, I mean, there's, for me, there's a kind of academic level, which is about an acceptable discourse within British, let's say British, but I think you could say Western culture, that makes somehow this uh, writable off as a joke or free speech or something. So there, there is a kind of discursive level at which um, th- this phenomenon hangs together. But in terms of an individual level, and in terms of you know, you know, getting to the place you want to get, which is that these people, and they're mostly guys, they're not only, as we know, not only guys, but these people don't do that anymore, then there are many different ways of actually answering back. And, and some of them, as Laurie says, you know, you know, I don't think it's very honourable to be a drunk 19-year-old on your holiday uh, explaining to the world that my vagina smells for cabbage. I don't think that's nice. Um, but there is something different from that, between that and the lettings agency in Sidcup, you know, the guy you know, mm. waiting till the wife and kids have gone to bed and sitting downstairs with a laptop open and photoshopping some labia onto my face. And to some extent, I think we have to have many different responses. And, and I think it's worth saying that one of the um, one of one of the other you know minor, and actually in this case it was rather funny co-celebrities that I got onto on Twitter um, was when um, a guy, after I'd been talking about um, the threats to other women on Radio Two a guy who did turn out to be about 19 and drunk and on holiday, um, posted a tweet, which I did exactly what Laurie did. I retweeted, and somebody said, um, somebody tweeted, I know his mother, let's tell her about this. Um, And he took the tweet down, and for a... for, for a while, it was a kind of nice little joke that, you know, how do you stop, uh, you know, a really stupid internet abuser you threaten to tell their mum? Yep. Um, but actually, the, the truth is, um, what happened then, and I'm not breaking any confidences, I think, between him and me, was that he got in touch with me, he came to Cambridge, he said, I want to apologise in person, um, and we've been in touch 
ever since. So he was an extremely stupid young man whose um, misogynistic mm. background I just prefer not to go to, yep. but he won't ever do that again. I think that's a really interesting point because we're talking here about everybody can be stupid and drunk and 19, but what is the cultural script that people fall into? And I think that when we're talking particularly about rape mm -hmm. threats, that's really interesting, is why is it that that is the internet misogynist's go-to yep. threat of choice about that idea that you, you want to prove your physical dominance over a woman. You want to, when what you see is sort of shaming her, yep. so it's something that she can't talk about. It's shaming, slut-shaming. The other one, of course, is you're ugly. You're ugly, so you don't deserve to speak because only beautiful women deserve to speak and then mainly about something pretty and, and, and silly that we're not really interested in. And but you don't want to hear pretty women speak because pretty women must be stupid. Yeah, so course. actually, it turns out you just don't want to so hear So actually, on this one day when you're allowed to speak, you also have to be a very specific type of pretty. <laughs> seven out so of ten. So seven out of ten, so that's, the, but that's enough. No, but the, um, one of the recurring themes, sort of refrain, is... Uh, the way people describe your voice, online, even if yeah. they haven't heard your voice, because yes. I, you know, I write, I write for a living. I don't um, generally speak on stage for a living. It's it's your shrill, yeah. your shrieking, your screaming, yes. your whining. It's all these words to describe the, the noise. It's as if women's speech is just. Yes indecipherable noise it's just this kind of yeah. this threatening shrill screaming thing that's coming out of you as if women were animals rather than human beings it's that dehumanization that i think is so interesting as a go-to refrain yeah. Yeah, so, i mean this, this i mean as I, I said in the the lectures that i gave at the british museum i, I think that you know, most in a sense, jolted me beyond all this stuff, you know, about what they were, how, how precisely they were going to rape me, was a, a totally mainstream article in a totally mainstream mm -hmm. uh, British magazine um, quoting what I'd said about these tweets, which was um, the misogyny was pretty gobsmacking, which I thought was a sort of slightly brave, um, uh, feisty, you know, thing to say. It said, the misogyny was gobsmacking, she whined. Right. I think that's really dangerous because where that has an echo for me is in the kind of language you see around domestic violence yep. Yep. about the yep. she wound him up and he snapped you know she yes. was always nagging yes. this idea that, that's always the word that men's violence is justified always by women's speech mm -hmm. and that's yeah. the same thing and I mean, people could accuse us here of having a discussion that's pretty rarefied because we're all high-profile women. The kind of interactions that we get are of a specific type, I think, to us. But everything that happens to us happens on a smaller scale or a different scale or happens yeah, with yes. people in their relationships, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I think that's an important thing. One thing I want to ask you, Mary, is about the kind of historical long view of this. So you spoke about the Odyssey. I can think of something like the Dunciad by Pope, where he's talking about women writers. It's this little-known fact that women wrote most of the novels in the 18th century, and yet we're, we're sort of the way that we look back on that period is as the, the Augustan age, where it was, only, it was only men, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Women writing about their feelings, as usual. Um, when you look about that, about the fact that this has been a centuries-old problem, does that give you... A pessimistic view that this is just something about human nature that will, will no good that's good no. optimism is good no it makes me um uh, makes me feel a little bit self-congratulatory or mutually self-congratulatory because you know i think if you think about the centuries old nature of this you think that 
uh, and I don't want to aggrandise the classical tradition as the only tradition that is uh, underlying British culture, but it is a very important one. Uh, and it, both classical Greek and classical Roman culture was actually fundamentally based on the explicit silencing of women. Mm -hmm. Women who have a voice are always the discordant, the mad, you know, the medias. Um, they're always women out of control or women at the margins of the world or they're witches or whatever. Now, you know, British elite culture has been brought up on that ideology for as long as we can trace it. British male elite and to some extent female elite mm -hmm. culture has been brought up on that view of women. So given that that, you know, we are actually looking back two and a half thousand years. Why I feel optimistic is I think actually we've done pretty well over the last, you know, in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. In, you know, so in, in making a change on that. And, you know, I, I did go onto a wonderful BBC website recently, which has just got... Um, it's got clips and sometimes whole programs from the 60s, 70s and 80s that reflect on feminism. And I, I turned on to a program from, I think, the late 60s, which I could well have watched. It was, it was on the, the Tonight program, which was the kind of main news program, which anybody as old as me uh, will remember. And it was a discussion with a, a range of women about whether they would ever want to be the dominant partner in their marriage. And, you know, they were feisty, you know, sorry to use that awful word again, they were feisty in different ways, or they were, you know, some, some of them were, were, were not. Not a single woman said anything but they would want in a marriage the man should be the boss. And I thought, look, uh, you know, I've got no idea whether I watched that programme, but it was a programme that with my parents mm. I did watch nightly. I would no doubt in 1969 or whatever it was have taken that as if it was normal. No, this was not put on the Tonight programme in order to be a great surprise, you know, to the nation. It was, you know, slightly bravely raising that question. And I probably would have thought it was unremarkable. And so in some ways, it, I, I think that um, my own trajectory here has changed from a moment when I would accept that, not necessarily agree, it, agree with it, but accept that kind of view as fine, to now what it just seems to me stark staring bonkers. And so I think... I think we've got a huge amount of history, which we shouldn't actually just get rid of. It's very interesting history, too. The history of misogyny, like the history of all sorts of oppression, actually is interesting. Um, but we've done ever so well. You know, I think, you know, you know, when I kind of, you know, fall off my perch, you know, it will have been a lifetime spent seeing things change mm. in a way that had not changed for centuries. I find it astonishing that there are women alive today who were born when women couldn't vote. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that, to see that level of, of change in our lifetime is, is quite extraordinary. And do, you th do you think that we are then in a... This is a last kind of death spasm of... You know, this kind of stuff is... Or is it going to be harder to kill? Is it going to be like a zombie? Is it going to rise <laughs> well, again every couple of years? Undead sexism? Well, look, I think one of the most important things that feminists... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Activism and feminist writing can do is to name the problem and to point out to people how far we have still to go, the big conversations about women's role in the world, the freedoms that we don't have. But one of the reasons I think that this is happening now, and by this I mean the kind of violent waves of misogynist language, uh, as well as sexist language, threats, attacks, and one of the reasons that it is happening now is because there has been such a sea change. I'm not even talking in terms of lifetimes, I'm talking in terms of three, maybe four years. I mean, look at everybody here. Look at the kind of attendance there is for an event like this. Now, I don't think this would have happened five years ago, not to this scale. I don't think we will be talking now in the nuanced language that we're using about women's voices. That conversation has started online. It it involves women from all kinds of different backgrounds, and, and women's voices are seen as a threat. Women's ideas and stories are seen as a threat. And a lot of these kind of bedroom crusaders really feel like they're battling this yeah the monstrous regiment of women is really on the go right now and and I don't think that it's a positive thing that the backlash is happening there is really a cultural war going on here I truly believe that and it feels often like like I'm in a constant psychological war every day and the victory is just I win every day by just continuing to do my job but um there is a real sense that Progress is happening in an exponential way, and that is what's really, truly threatening. A a statistic I read um, a few years ago, so it's um, it's probably even more positive now, is that in the print press... In the newspapers, 25% of opinion columns are written by women. And online, in just the political uh, professional corner of the internet, it's at least 35%, which is not a a complete change. That's a a 50% change. There's a real difference between who's being heard right now and the the different conversations that are being had about feminism. But I mean, I think also that even the consciousnesses... Of, of, of us ourselves are being raised. I mean, yep. you know, I, I think it's terribly easy to kind of sit back and think, oh, well, none of this applies to me. I know that I shouldn't use the word strident, I shouldn't use the word wine, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think one of the things that's made a huge difference to me in, in some of the work that I do, which is partly um, commissioning reviews on the Times Literary Supplement, mm. is actually saying, and it's in a minor corner of little literary journalism, of saying, so whose voices are being read in, say, the TLS or the London Review of Books or the New York Review? And uh, I found that, you know, I've learned a lot about my own practice. You know, I thought very confidently, I saw these, I thought, I'm sure that the reviews I commissioned, I'm sure it's at least 50% women. Yeah. I had no doubt, and I looked, and it wasn't. Um, and you know, I could do. You know, I could I could massage the figures at the margins, but it still wasn't good. And so I think, look, in all this, um, I think a lot of you know, we're all implicated 
even when we stand outside criticising it. And you can find that, it, that your own assumptions that you've not examined actually kind of do sometimes, in the end, shout at you and say... You're absolutely right. I definitely this. think when I think about what, what a serious essay is, in my mind, the author of a serious yeah. political essay is essentially a sort of generic middle-aged white man. Yes. And that's something that we all have to work very hard to change. And I remember the first time that I heard a pilot on the plane speak with a woman's voice. And, you know, I, I would like to tell that story as if it was me saying, yippee, you know, women in the cockpit. You know? And that is how I've replayed it to myself um, and would now tell it. But I think, truthfully, I thought, God, is that the pilot? <laughs> ah, you know, so, you know, we've all got... I don't think that I'm, you know, particularly reactionary here. I just think that the other side of this stuff being so embedded in us and in the material that we read and the voices that we hear is that not a single one of us really stand outside it. There was a piece in The Guardian today by Laura Bates of Everyday Sexism which talked about various types of sexism that women have faced at work and one of them was being mistaken for the secretary. Yes. And I had a horrible yeah. flashback to when I used to work on a newspaper and I once walked up to the features desk and I spoke to the only woman on it because I thought she was the secretary. <laughs> and you know, and you know, yeah. now we know I'm queen of feminism. But you are the queen of it's, feminism. It, it's hard, but I, I make it through. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that is is unique to men. I mean, this is why I think it's quite interesting to, to distinguish between sexism and misogyny, and and this is why we talk about patriarchy, even though it makes people run away. Um, is the idea that this is that's a, oppression? This... If you use the word patriarchy, it's oppression, and actually worse oppression than patriarchy, saying that word. And I think you should be called out right now. <laughs> OK, I'm chastened. Can someone do that? But this is exactly the Get point, is it. that it's, not, it's yeah. not about saying men are horrible. Like I said in a review, I've met at least three men who were perfectly serviceable. Yeah. Uh, and there may be more. There may be more, I don't know. But this is about a system in which women are consistently valued lower. But before we go and take some questions, I just want to ask you for a final thing. If you were a young woman came to you today and said... Name me a brilliant, outspoken woman from history that I should go and read and find out all about. Laurie, who would you pick? Oh, um, I've been going through Emma Goldman's work lately, and I think she is fantastic. And again, um, if you read the newspaper reports about her at the time, it's really funny. It's all about the way she dresses and her little so voice. So explain to anyone who doesn't know Sorry, Emma Goldman, uh, the anarchist theorist and activist, uh, active in the end of the 1800s right up to, uh, to the Second World War. Uh, her essays are fantastic and actually a lot of them are available online. I'm very, very into that. I don't think we'd call it first wave feminism because when we think of first wave feminism, we think of people in, straight, in hats looking like bantams running around asking for the vote. But actually there was a lot more socialist and anarchist theorists involved in that feminist discussion. And I know you're a big fan of Nellie Bly as well. I love Nellie Bly. And actually... Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, she's a, a, Nellie, a yeah, early she's a, female journalist. The first female investigative journalist and, and one of the first sort of gonzo reporters. And again, the funny thing was, she was always sold by the New York World, the paper she, she wrote for as this kind of... It was important that it, it was quaint that a woman was saying things rather than the content that matters. But she did the first interview, the first real interview with uh, Emma Goldman. She went to the tombs in New York to, to interview her. And it's this piece 
piece is not in her collected journalism. As far as I know, it's not published anywhere. I just found it on the internet. It is this astonishing conversation. Actually, they start off talking about clothes. It's like they have this little chat about what do you wear in prison? You know, it's like what sort of bonnet do you like to wear in prison? But then they get on to really hardcore stuff about marriage and economics and what it means and stuff that is radical today, let alone then. Um, I, what I would say, though, is um, a lot of young women come to me today, and it's not so much about asking for a reading list, it's about asking for courage, because they, a letter I've been receiving more and more in different versions from from a lot of young women who want to write and who want to have some kind of intellectual career is... How do I cope with the inevitable backlash? How do I do what you're doing? People say, like, you must be very brave. I'm not sure if I could be that brave. And that is what really terrifies me, that idea that some people would just be opting out before they've even begun. That's what it is designed to do. And that is what is... I think it's on all of us to combat that, to just remain in place, keep on speaking. I think that's exactly right, because I think there's a danger when you talk about this kind of stuff that you can feel that you're, you're turning people off and saying that it's the worst thing in the world to be a woman in public life. It's not. I get to have, do things like, like this. Yeah. We get to have excellent conversations with people. You meet the most You get incredible. to hang out with me all the time. Um, and we I will think be, at, yeah. at a certain point, uh, where the, sort of the, you know, the light shone with me was the first time that I heard myself speak and I thought, that's me. That's me speaking. So, and that, obviously, it was in a classical lecture. And it, you know, wasn't talking about anything to do with women. But I suddenly realised that everything I'd been doing up to that point had been a version of the Thatcher phenomenon. You know, but what I've got to do is I've got to sound like somebody else. And so, no wonder it didn't sound convincing to me or to anybody else, because it was a kind of rather hopeless um, version of acting. And when I thought... And, and I didn't used to speak. I mean, I remember the... For years and years when I was a young academic, I would go to seminars where people's careers are made and broken and I would not open my mouth. Um, and I couldn't open my mouth because I hadn't got the script, you know? And I couldn't talk like me because I didn't think that talking like me was what I was supposed to do. So the only answer to that is to shut up. And if somehow, and I've, if only I knew how it had happened to me, I would share it with everybody, you know, my tip, you know. And I had no clue, but I now know that for better or worse, and even when in the end I think, God, you shouldn't have said that beard, that was perhaps a bit of an advice, that was a bit silly, it feels like me. There is a direct relationship mm -hmm. between my words and what's going on in my head. And I think that that is... So important, and that's what the silencing of women's voices tends to prevent. Great outspoken woman in history, Mary. Um, well, there's absolutely none in the classical world, I'm afraid. You know, I would like to say Boudicca, but she was Livia. You know, she was awful. You know, Boudicca was <laughs> frankly terrible. You know, now, I'm glad I didn't. You know, the Romans were better than living under Boudicca. Let me assure you. Um, I suppose for better or worse, um, I, I, I think I go for Mary Wollstonecraft. It's a kind of conservative view in, in one way. But what I think is great about Vindication Rights of Women is that if you read it, you see someone really struggling for the first time to think that through. You know, so it isn't coming out 
on the basis of a body of theory um, that can be appealed to. It's someone at first principles, with all their dreadful prejudices about how awful servants are and things like yeah. that, but it's all, you know, and feminism actually comes from people who have awful prejudices about servants, as well as from, you know, those that don't. You just kind of see it raw. And that's what I like about it. And I think I will pick um, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who is an 18th century writer who she wrote... She was a Whig, unfortunately. Yeah, but, you know, there's a statute of limitations on some of those things, maybe. But uh, Jonathan Squiff wrote a terrible poem called The Lady's Dressing Room, in which he goes into the dressing room of his lady love and discovers, to yes. his horror, that she blows her nose and she has spots and, uh, and repeating amorous fits of Celia, Celia, Celia shits. shits. And she wrote a reply to this entitled, which, which implied that the reason he'd written this was because he couldn't get it up when he went to visit a prostitute. Yep. And he said, in short, I'm glad you'll write. You'll furnish paper when I shite. <laughs> so I thought that's somebody who played Swift very much his own game. And I like that. Um, we're going to have some questions now. I've got some microphones in the audience. So if you if put your hands up and I'll try and get someone to you. Um, yeah, it, it was sort of good to hear that there's some optimism. And I think certainly if you look back over... Um, the whole of history to think that you know in the last hundred years um, women have got the vote and you know so much else has happened but I mean so far this evening we've been talking very much from a British maybe western perspective but looking in the news looking at the news over the last few months what's happening in other countries around the world seems incredibly frightening and there seems to be you know even even more and very violent kind of attitudes towards women and I wonder whether you might be able to say something about that and, and also whether you think that sort of feminism being sort of caught up in other social issues, so maybe things to do with um, legal systems in countries or austerity measures, and, and those kind of things is either helpful or not helpful to feminism as a, as a cause. So should we take, first of all, that question about whether or not are we triumphalist from a British perspective? I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. and uh, I, I, mean, yeah, I feel caught in a real trap. You know, that, you know, that where I'm coming from is not unashamed, it's a shamedly uh, Western liberal, you know, not in my case particularly elite, you know, um, you know, you know, I'm not a toff, but it's, um, but it's, it's liberal Western academic. And I'm always, I just, and I, I don't know the answer to this that I'm always both ashamed by the fact that that is, in a sense, how I see feminism. You know, and that is not to say that you know, I'm not 100% uh, you know, behind um, many of the campaigns to help women in all sorts of different ways, uh, empower women in all other kind of parts of the world, uh, you know, FGM, whatever. Um, but you're caught, on the other hand, by this sense of, you know, the idea of feminism as some kind of liberal neo-colonialism, mm. which is going to say to women on any other bit of the planet, be like us, dears. Um, because, because actually politics is more complicated than uh, exporting a particular... Actually, in my case, I think British, because I think it would feel different in France and Germany, actually a particularly British version of what feminism is, as if it was universal. Now, you know, at this point, you know, I, you know I'm caught on the um, 
on the dilemma of that. Because then you say, so you think it's not important then to support um, the women in X country when they're... And, and of course I don't. And yet I can't find... I, I don't know where the firm ground is. And you know, there's nothing worse than seeing, you know, I don't know, you know, I see my students doing it. They're learning, you know, you know going off and trying to sort of, you know, teach the Somalis that they, you know, this is a gap here. about women's right to choose, you yeah. know. I think what I would say is that, yeah, it is massively important to acknowledge intersectionality within feminism to be, and, to, and to acknowledge that women's voices are not monolithic, that there are all kinds of different priorities and agendas for women across the world that link into feminism. But you know, there, is no, there actually is no high vagina. That's the big truth here. But because um, women are not, in fact, single-celled organisms, I'm not saying this is what you're saying, right? And we can hold more than one idea in our tiny brains at once. I feel it is perfectly possible for me to support the struggles of women living in Egypt and experiencing state rape there, for example, where I reported there last year, and at the same time to talk in a real way about issues that are happening here and issues that are happening in the USA. Because the wonderful thing about the internet is that those conversations can now happen at the same time. We don't have to choose. We can have, well, and we frequently do have those conversations all night. In fact, I was having one last night. Um, the it is not my place to speak for women of colour and women who are not Western, but I think the... I've always seen it as part of my duty. Now I've attained this sort of moderate public platform to amplify the voices of women who don't have my platform and listen. And when, when I was writing my book, this was really... A, this was a big dilemma for me. I struggled for it because part of... From it was... Because it was partly about my own background, how I came to my own politics. But there were lots of points through that book where I just had to go and talk to somebody else about how it was. It's not just feminism in different countries. It's feminism in different classes within the same That's, country. Yeah. Yeah, in, it's, uh, there are all kinds of different experiences of womanhood. And we can feminism is massively inclusive, in fact. And uh, in, in terms of... Um, and, and that also goes for your question about austerity, your question about economic issues. I mean, I think that... Uh, well, the classic line, isn't it, is, is, isn't it, that men are an economic problem? Um, feminism is, I think, an economic movement at root as much as anything else. Um, austerity is a feminist issue. Um, a, a lot of feminists don't, are not also socialists. I happen to be socialist partly because I'm a feminist and, um, and I'm happy with that. And I think there's also a point, isn't there, about the fact that, well, we know that women have disproportionately suffered because they work mm -hmm. in the public sector. So it is a feminist issue yes. purely on that women are more likely to have part-time or insecure work. So they are more affected by that. Um, I'm, if you're not all wilting, I know we're supposed to be wrapping up now, but we will maybe carry on for another 10 minutes, if that's right. Maybe get some Should more we questions take a in. few questions at once? Yes, maybe, I'm yeah. going to distribute some microphones. I'll tell you what, I'm going to go crazy, and you three in a row will just have to fight amongst yourselves, and then we'll do three in a row from that side. Um, lady at the front who was very kind to pass the microphone up before, and then I'm going to take a question from a man, but we will shame you for it. Um, no, no shame. Um, my question is about answering back. Um, we talked a lot about young people and um, changing, like young people changing their opinions and obviously the other issue is platform and how you, you know, you have a platform 
more than we have a platform. And so the kind of energy that you put into argument, arguments has a wider audience. But my question is about um, kind of in everyday life, how do we pick our battles? Because it, it is, you know, I come across people, old, young, very set in their views, um, people who catcall me on the street. When, when and how do we pick our battles? Because it's, it, it's so much feminist energy to like have a big conversation. Like how do, how do we pick, pick when we have that conversation? So, sometimes you choose to pass, don't you? I mean, you know, if, if, if you were to go around thinking that every bit of battle that might be worth um, facing was one that you should fight. I mean, actually, you'd end up yeah. really warped. And you could do nothing else. You'd do it's nothing else. It's a massive else. drain on your time. And what's I that? got into terrible trouble once because I, I did a, 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 a little radio essay which said, uh, and it was true, that I didn't any longer worry too much about Miss World. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I would sort of prefer a world in which Miss World didn't happen. But having watched it on some kind of online, it's no longer on telly, I thought, you know, they'll just die. You know, that will die. You know, I'm going to fight something else. And so I said, you know, I didn't really, you know, I didn't quite bother about it. It wasn't top of my priority. And I got into trouble, but I felt, I felt, look, you know, in the end, you know, Pick your targets, pick battles that you can win. And there are some battles that you can win actually simply by answering back. You know, simply by saying, I'm terribly sorry. Good female way to start. I'm terribly sorry. I don't think you heard what I said. Um, now, you know, I live in, of course, in a world, you know, I. Insofar as I have a public platform, ironically, I have a public platform from, because what are these trolls did? You know, um, so uh, you know they would say, and they do, that I'm a, a you know a beneficiary of them giving me fame. Um, They're lovely uh, um, so of a sort. That's what they say. You know, you know, you just you know, you're lapping it up, my dear. But uh, you know that it's been very, very, very recent. Anyone was the slightest bit interested in what I said uh, beyond my colleagues in my um, uh, nice, but I think still quite conflicted university. Um, so most of my life, I've lived um, very much saying. Um, you know, do you think one of the men would like to help us carry the teacups out? You know, um, no, I don't think it's my job to choose the curtains. You know, and and actually, most of it has been fought on relatively everyday sexism fronts, and most of it has been rather careful, I think, in retrospect, in choosing battles that are winnable, because there's no fun losing. What's that line by um, Virginia Woolf about killing the angel in the house? Yeah, kill, I think yes. what we should also kill is the idea of the perfect feminist. And I think that's a really unhelpful demand that's put onto women, is the idea that you can care about everything, that you have infinite time and resources. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly that weighs really heavily on women who we know are disproportionately saddled with care and responsibilities, both of children and of parents mm -hmm. when they get older. And there is no shame in only having a certain amount of your, of your life to devote to something. And if anybody's making you feel bad about what you do, that person is, is unhelpful. That is energy yeah. that they are not putting into doing something themselves. I would also draw attention to the fact that it's very, very easy to feel alone when, uh, when this kind of stuff is happening to you. And, of course, it doesn't only happen to women with a big public platform. It happens to a lot of different people, many of whom are not then invited to talk about it in public. 
but it is not it isn't your fault I believe you that it's happening I think it's really important to say that to women who say they're experiencing harassment to anybody who's experiencing abuse and what I found is that you deal with it in your own way you reach a certain level and if you find you can't carry on that's when other people carry you and there are other people out there to carry us when we feel like we can't continue and that is what's fantastic about the internet and about modern feminism I don't know where I'd be without it and I think there's also a virtue in being active rather than always reactive. So one of the things that has most helped me is I, I, I'm now chair of a board for a, a violence against women organisation, and that is something that I go out and do. It's not I'm sitting there being angered by all of this stuff that's coming in towards me. I'm going out and doing my thing that is only a really small thing, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that I appreciably see. Go ahead and um, fire so away quickly. My question is another one about optimism. Um, and while we know that hashtag not all men are violent, we do know that the, the majority of violence that women experience is at the hands of men, but also that the majority of men's violence is against other men. Mm. And quite often when I'm talking about this, a sociologist friend of mine will say, well, men are violent, deal with it. And my question is kind of um, around that meme that's been going around that says, you know, feminism holds that men are more, we believe that men can do better and it's the people who say that women provoke men into actions for which they are not responsible that is misandry and are we being realistic in believing that men are more that's and that we can move past that or are we deluded that's what i find absolutely fascinating is that is the the grim view that you get of men from anti-feminists. So the idea that if a woman isn't covered from head to toe, then men are simply so stupid and so ruled by their passions that they will not be able to stop themselves raping Slavering bona beasts. Yeah, exactly. If, if a feminist ever imputed that kind of thing to men, you'd say, well, that's the most unbelievable man-hating tripe I've ever, I've ever heard, wouldn't you? And I think that that's... I think that the vast majority of men that I know are wonderful. Very occasionally they explain things to me that I already know. Um, <laughs> quite a lot of time I explain things to them that they already know is a sort of revenge thing um, but I think it's such a slur on, on all the wonderful men that there are out there and I'm sure all of our lives are filled with, with many wonderful men that to say that men can't be anything more than that is, is astonishing and that's why I don't understand why more men aren't more angry because it reflects really badly on them frankly I'm talking which man question and it better be a bloody good one <laughs> No pressure. Go on. <laughs> right. I hope I'm not heckled for this, but when I studied <laughs> when I studied the Odyssey at school, I thought that Penelope was the best character because she was so brave to wait for Odysseus, and she was basically alone except for a son who went off halfway through. Is that wrong? Because a girl in my class said she hated her because she was the weakest character. Is she the best, or or is that? <laughs> Good question. Mary, I think Laurie and uh, I are underqualified to deal with uh, this one. I, I think the careful response to that is to say that happily the Odyssey, you know, despite being one of the earliest works of Western literature, is also, and this is why it's lived such a long time, an extremely complicated one. And so although one could construct a view of the Odyssey, which I'm inclined to do, which is to say, Penelope is shut up, and Penelope is made to wait, and she's made to wait at that bloody loom every day, you know, upstairs, you know, doing the shroud of the old dad, you know? Um, 
and that what we see is women being rewarded for um, patience and not stepping out of line. What makes the Odyssey continue to be worth reading is that one can never be quite certain. You know, you know, is Penelope actually the really smart one who, despite that kind of, um, despite the putting down that she repeatedly gets, she's actually, she knows that she's going up to the loom and, and weaving by day and unweaving it by night, so she never has to marry one of those nasty suitors. You know, so there's a kind of smart and cleverness there, which always makes you stop and think. But it's a very, it's actually the Odyssey is a frankly very odd poem, you know. And the fact that when Odysseus has got back to Mrs., you know, the whole thing is supposed to be about man gets back to wife via various erotic entanglements en route. He gets back and then he says, Oh, by the way, I'm going off again. <laughs> now, how's that of a way to end an epic, if not interesting? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting that question, but it was a very good question. Oh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to take one last question. If, if you're not, <laughs> go on, go for it. Hi, evening. This has been an absolutely wonderful chat. Um, just very, very quickly to address the wider point of diversity within an intersectionality within yeah, the whole feminist movement. Um, I think the issue with feminism is that, like. Oppression operates on a continuum. And just because, and I think also a wider question of representation, you know, um, we could also speak in terms of class. A lot of very white, educated, middle class women are here speaking on behalf of our many sisters who might not be, who might be white, but are also not middle class. And the fact that, you know, um, a, lot of di a lot of black women might, been to, might be Oxbridge educated and articulate does not necessarily mean they haven't had to face certain institutional hurdles to get there in the first place. Which leads me actually wonderfully delightfully to my original question, um, which is this idea of, Laurie, you spoke quite interestingly of, you know, the single day that women get to speak. But I was kind of thinking that there isn't, it's not really a day itself, but kind of this idea that there's a line that continues to shift and that patriarchy, for want of that, you know, rather incendiary Run word, away. Um, <laughs> um, dictates that the line is constantly moving and that maybe you're black and educated, but you're not oppressed enough so you yeah. can't speak. Um, and I just wanted to ask, like, if either both you and Mary, if you could speak to moments in your careers, um, like of your younger selves where you felt kind of pulled in different directions where perhaps you weren't oppressed enough, perhaps you were too shrill. Um, and just like personal anecdotal experiences which you share with us all. Thank you. I, I, yeah. I've got a, a one anecdote which I don't think I've ever shared before but I think it fits what you're talking about. Um, that when I was a uh, a student, I went on the departmental student, the departmental committee. It was the first time there were student representatives on the committee. What I discovered uh, uh, was that actually this was conducted in terms of very kind of urbane male wit. You know, everybody was joking uh, in a way that I, I, I felt outside, but I thought it was funny, and I laughed the whole time. Um, my uh, teacher my elderly teacher in Cambridge, um, when she had me in for her end of term interview, she said, you should not laugh so much when you're at the faculty board. 
And I felt completely, I felt, A, completely humiliated. I thought, you know, I have done this all wrong. I thought I was part of this and I'm not. A few weeks later, I thought that she'd given me some good advice. You know, and that I, I had been playing the role of someone who actually, in all sorts of ways, female student giggler, didn't have a right to speak. Hmm. So it was right advice, but it was very hard to take, and I think I had, I got it wrong. Well, actually, um, well, I can't put my finger on a, uh, on a single time when I've been told that I'm either too shrill or too posh or too not posh or too ugly or too pretty to speak, in fact, often on the same day, too fat or too thin to speak, both on the same day. Um, but uh, I, uh, there was a day a few months ago when I had written about, um, I'd written about something completely unrelated to, um, to women's issues at all, which I do sometimes do, actually, uh, for the New Statesman. I think it was uh, when I did that piece about owls. Yeah, everybody. Oh, yeah. everybody should have their own owl. Yeah, Labour it talk- got hacked and accidentally tweeted a pledge that everyone should have their own owl, and it was wildly popular, the most popular thing that Labour have probably ever announced during yeah. this government. <laughs> but unfortunately, it turned the out to be an error. Best policy ever. Um, but I wrote a piece about that, and then suddenly I was getting the same stuff. I was getting, you're so shrill, you're a posh girl, shut up, you have no right to speak, you know, you hectoring female feminist. Like, hang on, this is, the, I've not even mentioned, you don't even, don't, I just wanted an owl. <laughs> <laughs> and I realised that actually it didn't matter what, what, uh, what I was saying, it mattered that I was the person exactly. saying it and I could not help but cross that line. And actually when you get to that stage, and I think everybody everybody has their own moment when you realise that, and maybe this is a, a kind of cynical note to end on, but there comes a point when you realise that whatever you say, even if it's a lovely article about owls, you're going to mm. upset them. So you may as well say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> or... I think... I think we're... As a, as a manifesto for the future, I think we're probably unlikely to do better than that, so yes. I'm probably going to say a great big so thank you to both like. Mary Beard and Laurie Penny. Th- and please. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Maughan.